welcome to Tech Law Talks. I am Anthony Diana, a member of Reed Smith's Tech and Data Group. In each episode of this podcast, we will discuss cutting edge issues on technology, data, and the law. We will provide practical observations on a wide variety of technology and data topics to give you quick and actionable tips to address the issues you are dealing with every day. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. We are looking forward to this discussion about negotiating with AI vendors. I'm Sarah Bruno. I'm a partner in the entertainment and media group here at Reed Smith, and my practice focuses on issues involving the cross-section of advertising, privacy, and IP, which nowadays involves a lot of AI discussions. I'm joined today with my colleague, Cynthia O'Donoghue, who is in the tech and data group in London, and she's going to bring us some perspective from London and the EU as well, based on her work in the AI space. In addition, we have Jordan Tannery, who is in our Dallas office, and Jordan focuses primarily on IP transactions and tech transactions. And Jordan and I, here in the U.S., work routinely together on AI agreements, and we're certainly troubleshooting a lot of issues in this space. So very much looking forward to this conversation today. I'll kick it off and just add one of the big complications I think we're having here in the U.S. in this space is that we're dealing with a lot of new regulations currently. In particular, we've got a lot of new privacy laws that are tapping into the AI space. And one of the reasons this is an issue is because AI, the whole essence of AI, relies upon data. And the reason being is that the data input is what makes these machines smarter very much so they're capturing a lot of data and routinely using that data to train their algorithms so that the machines can be smarter. I know here in San Francisco, I the street I live on, we have vehicles that are just constantly driving up and down and around the block with the AI uh, systems attached to them. I won't reveal the brands, but certainly that is, you know, my, my kids, we're all very familiar with them and we know what they're doing is just training their AI capturing data so those those cars can get smarter. So like I said, the problem is, is that we've got these regulations here in the United States that are trying to give consumers more control over their data. I think one of the big issues we see here now, in addition to Colorado, Virginia, California, having laws that are requiring opt-ins and opt-outs for the use of automated decision-making technology, we also have the big one is the requirement for data minimization. Nowadays, the data that you're collecting, you have to notify consumers the purpose for the collection and also use it for that purpose. So when you're thinking about AI vendors, they're needing a lot of data. The more data they can get, the smarter their machines are. So this data minimization, I think, could end up being a problem in the AI space. One of the issues that's interesting in this space is Virginia's new law is going to require opt-in consent for use of data for a secondary purpose. And so, again, I mentioned the fact that it's really important that you you have notice and you give notice with respect to the purpose for the collection, which was already generally required under our laws here in the U.S. It's definitely been required under GDPR. But in addition to that, thanks to Virginia, now if there's a secondary purpose for use of the data, you're going to have to get opt-in consent. And that does hit this AI vendors in particular, because as we all know, they're using their data, training their algorithms for particular negotiation for your company, but they may also need the data down the line for other third parties that they're going to be serving. And so we do have to think through in those instances, whether the vendor 
or you has to get that opt-in consent. So it's just a, another little tidbit under the law that we all have to think through when negotiating with these AI vendors. And I'll pause, Cynthia, because you guys there in London have been dealing with this for a lot longer because your regulations are certainly ahead of ours. So I wanted to ask if you had any thoughts on the data minimization and what challenges you're seeing there. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, there are absolute challenges on all of these things. And we have the GDPR, of course, in the UK, and then there's the European GDPR. And data minimization is a primary principle within those laws. The other complication that we have, and the GDPR sits side by side in Europe with a draft AI Act, which is specifically looking at regulating AI and instituting a entire governance process that is auditable and that would require at some point some form of manual intervention if the output of the AI is not what was intended. In addition, that draft legislation under the EU has schedules attached to it that list different categories of where use cases for AI. And some of those categories are considered high risk and so are likely to be regulated even more robustly. But going back to what you said about the data, right now, obviously, the GDPR is here in the UK. We have the GDPR in Europe. And the main principle, as I said, being one of data minimization, makes it really difficult for the data sets. In addition, because of the algorithms essentially either having the possibility to, to predict behavior or predict outcomes, if the outcomes are based purely on machine processing and result in a significant effect to an individual, like let's say automated underwriting decisions or automated mortgage decisions based on certain inputs, where it would have a significant effect on the consumer under the GDPR, there has to be a way not for those people to be profiled in that way. There has to be a way to inform them how the algorithm works. And then also there has to be that manual intervention so that the outcome can be changed. So you're seeing some overlap with some of the principles between what's in the GDPR already and what's potentially in the draft legislation in Europe for the AI Act. And so Jordan, since we've talked about some of the legislation, let's now switch to talk a little bit more about some of the contractual issues. You know, when we're doing due diligence, one of the challenges, you know, we have with companies in the AI space is most often they are startups. And so I know that we've worked on several AI matters together. What would you suggest for clients to do in terms of, of due diligence for, you know, some of these infant types of companies and, and startups? Yeah, thanks, Cynthia. I think the number one most important thing that you can ask from any AI vendor is to complete a vendor security assessment questionnaire. And that helps verify that they have the appropriate security program in place. If that company is providing you know, personal data or sensitive personal information, they can make sure there's those potential weaknesses that they can identify in case of a breach. So usually within the vendor security assessment questionnaire, you would see questions like, are you NIST compliant in the United States? 
do you do SOC 1 or SOC 2 type 2 audits on an annual basis? And with startups, a lot of these companies are not doing that yet just because it is a very kind of expensive feat to do to have somebody come in and audit you on an on a annual basis. But I think those are so important, especially with AI vendors, to either see that they're doing that or that they have that, you know, in the future, that that's what they're going to be doing. I think the other thing you can do is just research online. Are they a startup like they have started in the last three months or are they a startup, you know, and they're maybe a little bit more sophisticated, you know, one to two years down the line? What clients do they do? Do they have anybody big named on their website? that you can look at and say, oh, hey, they've done a Fortune 50 company before. I think that's really important. And then ask for their papers and ask questions. I think what they need to understand is what data do they need and how is it going to be used in the AI model? I think those are all super important things to think about when you're going with due diligence before selecting an AI vendor. Yeah, and I'll jump in on that. I had one in particular where the in-house counsel was getting a lot of pressure from the marketing folks to work with this vendor. And the in-house legal team started to just do a little bit of reconnaissance on the vendor and, and did learn that it was you know very much in the new stages of development. And on that note, the client spent some time looking at the privacy policy and asking some questions you know, specifically with respect to these things that we brought up here in the U.S., the data minimization, data retention, which we'll get to when we talk about what happens at the end of the contract. But long story short, privacy policy wasn't up to speed, indicated a lack of sophistication. So, you know, one hand, we're giving the advice, do do this due diligence, do do this fact checking. But on the other hand, this is also advice to AI vendors to make sure that you do take the time to learn these requirements and understand these requirements so that when you have a company that comes to you, you do have an understanding and a sophistication with respect to both the regulations that Cynthia mentioned and here what we're dealing with in the U.S. and also have a privacy policy. Demonstrate that you understand that there's laws attached to this because certainly in that case, you know, the client ended up not moving forward uh, because of the concern with respect to the lack of sophistication. But that was just a little case scenario that I wanted to share. And I, I guess I'll, I'll just move forward with the next piece here, which is IP issues. And Jordan, I know that, again, your practice focuses on IP in particular. Is there anything you want to highlight with respect to the work you've done with AI vendors? Yeah, I think IP is a really, really big part of some confusion with the AI vendors. I think the first one we'll go over is infringement. So usually, typically, what clients would like to see is that IP infringement uh, warranty, right? You're providing me something that doesn't infringe or misappropriate a third party's IP rights. And so with this, with AI tools, a vendor of software may say, you know, they represent, they own this or they have sufficient rights to allow a customer to use or benefit it. But the AI system itself may produce infringing code. Code is not, it's ones and zeros, right, with source code. There's not that many modifications, alterations, different types of way that you can put one and zeros together. So with this, 
these AI vendors may be making a wrapper warranty that they actually know, they don't know is false, but it's not an actual wrap that this thing is not infringing. So they need to understand when you make an infringement liability for both the customer and the AI vendor, the risk that could be with this and how to allocate that liability. With a customer, obviously I would say that because you guys are being purchasing an AI model, you would want to make sure that you aren't purchasing something that's infringing. That's why you would ask for that rep and warranty. But the AI vendor may or may not give that to you. So as a customer, you need to understand that that's some liability that you may have to take on yourself and look for it in another way. Maybe you put in an IP infringement indemnity instead. And I think the biggest hurdle with AI is ownership. We know who owns the AI model. We know who owns the data that's being inserted into the AI model, but who owns the output of the AI model? When that data goes in, it's transformed in a way to make it an output. Who owns that? Is it the AI model itself that owns it? Or is it the developer who's actually putting in the back work and doing all of the transformation of the data? Or is it the customer? And with ownership, it's really important, especially when it comes to the end of the agreement, as to who gets it, who gets perpetual rights to use that. An AI vendor would say that they own it. They are putting in a lot of work. The AI model transformed it. They should own it. And then with that, with ownership rights, that means they get to do with it whatever they please. You know, they can use it and disclose it to other customers. They can use it internally to help improve that AI model. But customers would probably be scratching their heads thinking, well, why would my data be now owned by you? And so with customers, I think it's really important to understand who owns that. Look at the IP clauses carefully to see who actually owns the output and whether or not that, that AI vendor at the end of the term of the agreement will either give you back that output or if they want some perpetual license to continue to use it. I think ownership is something that's kind of a gray area right now. I think we're still trying to parse out who actually owns it. But if a customer is dead set on wanting to own this, they need to make sure that they have the proper clauses in that contract to make sure they get full ownership of it at the end. Jordan, that is such an important point. I mean, certainly in EU, and I think this complicates the ownership. When you're doing AI based on personal data, the individual is deemed to own that data. There's no IP in it for either the customer or vendor in a contractual relationship. They're essentially mere you know, controllers or custodians, for want of a better word. And what we have found with AI vendors and things is they don't seem to understand that. And they have essentially argued that they own the, you know, the IP in that data. And so it's been a real struggle, I would say, in some contracts to educate people about personal data ownership versus AI ownership. Now, certainly in Europe, we have something called database rights, where if you put a lot of energy and effort and extensive development costs into a database, you may have IP rights over it. But when you're talking about AI that includes personal data, as opposed to AI that might be, to give Sarah's example about smart driving, 
the arguments around ownership and, and use and perpetual rights to use can become even more complicated. Absolutely, Cynthia. I think the other biggest issue that I have seen with customers and vendors when negotiating contracts is the liability cap. You know, customers want an extremely high liability cap so that they're shielded from damages in case of a breach by the AI vendor. And there's also exclusions to that as well. How do you typically navigate the liability cap and the exclusions and disclaimers of damages when working with AI vendors? It can be really difficult to do. I mean, some of the standard warranties you would see, like a compliance with all applicable law, may not really work for the reason I just said in relation to personal data. And some vendors that are less aware of some of the, let's say, risks with, with that sort of warranty may sign up to, to something like that anyway. And I have to admit, there's been a real mix between which companies will sign up to that kind of a, a compliance with all APIC laws and which ones won't. But of course, that has a knock-on effect to liability. And, you know, if you're dealing with AI with personal data for purposes of the GDPR, it's 4% of worldwide annual turnover. If you fail, for instance, to comply with the data minimization principle, which Sarah was talking about earlier, and the new draft AI law has also a 4% of worldwide turnover. When you're dealing with a startup to try and have a, a, you know, a liability cap separate for personal data or something commensurate with the fines under those laws, it's it's probably not going to be worth the paper it's written on. So you're going to have to look at potentially separate liability caps and risk evaluation. And Sarah, you've obviously worked with this as well. So it'd be great to hear, you know, some experience from you as well. Yeah. So this is a question that we get a lot. And actually, we've actually even had to do, you know, some deep digging in to see what kind of the settlement ranges we've seen and what you know penalties we've seen so that we can come up with a liability cap. And even that is very difficult because as we all know, it's a case-by-case analysis with respect to the liability cap and what's reasonable. Certainly when you're dealing with highly sensitive information, you're looking at a really high cap. Again, I've one vendor in particular, it was data involving children. So way more sensitive. We wanted a higher cap there, of course. I know, Cynthia, you and I have worked a lot in the, the health space and medical space, and that is a situation where the data is more sensitive, so you're looking at a higher cap. Also, another thing that's come up is how many data sets. In normal terms, outside of AI, it may be a little easier to have an idea of the number, but with AI, it's just impossible to predict how much data will be running through. So that's really, you just have to think it's a very high number. And in addition, so I guess what we think about is the the data sets, the nature of the data, those are two very important points, but jurisdictions. And Cynthia already mentioned that. I mean, if you're dealing with Europe and the UK, you have much higher possibility for penalties. In the US, the laws are more new here, so we don't have as much to look at with respect to what the potential penalties. So we're looking at data incidents, we're looking at the regulatory fines that we've seen. But, you know, to be honest, a lot of those have been big, splashy cases. So it's really difficult to make a jurisdiction-based analysis. And a lot of us just end up, if, if Europe's involved, we look at the GDPR, because that's the highest potential settlement or penalty that, that we know of at this point. 
Cynthia, you raised this already with respect to the, these are startups, what can they actually cover? Similar thought process with the indemnity. Startups, I mean, this comes up all the time, like we, you know, can they really even indemnify us? Because as between the two parties, the AI vendor is also often a a much smaller scaled company. So the indemnity is not going to mean much. Cynthia, how, how have you navigated that on your side? The indemnity has been difficult, uh, to be honest. You know, I mean, there can be a tradition to try and seek an indemnity for any breach of an agreement, or there can be, you know, custom and practice to try and seek an indemnity for breach of data protection laws. And it has to be, let's say, reasonable, in my view, because if if the indemnity is for an amount that a, a smaller vendor or a startup is never going to be able to pay, then it's not really worth the paper it's written on. And I think there has to be a weighing of the risks. In other words, you know, what is the vendor willing to stand behind in relation to their solution? You know, how much of the liability would be apportioned to the vendor, depending on, you know, the solution, the solution that's being discussed? What is the category of the data? What are their rights to use it? Is there the potential for a consumer to go directly after the AI provider rather than a customer? And I think it really depends on how the AI is going to be used. If it's going to be bundled into a package that somebody in turn sells to their customers or clients so that they become almost in the middle between the AI vendor and their end users, all these issues become let's say, much more difficult. And it's almost easier to go back to the questions we talked about, about the liability cap and carve out different caps for different types of liability. And it might be worth treating some damages as liquidated damages instead of on a pure indemnity basis. Jordan, what would your experience be with this? One of the the things that I think is distinguishable between if you're using AI with personal data in Europe is that because it's a regulatory issue and it might be subject to regulatory fine, there's always a question about whether somebody could get insurance for that fine. They might get insurance for other parts of the contract, but not in relation to violations of the GDPR. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with AI vendors, they may be willing to give a little bit more on the indemnification, but when a customer is looking towards insurance to potentially cover the damages that may result from breach or an indemnification obligation, it's important to see what the insurance covers. So if an AI system fails or causes damages, then the parties have to determine which coverage, if any of the insurance policies that an AI vendor may have, applies to the situation. And cyber insurance may not cover all AI failures. It typically covers stealing attacks, data leakage, However, it doesn't cover bodily harms. Like Sarah said, you know, there's self-driving cars in San Francisco. If that self-driving car all of a sudden ran over somebody at a stop sign, the cyber insurance isn't going to cover that. Is it going to be covered under the commercial general or professional liability insurance policies? We don't know just because cyber insurance hasn't really come up with the times of covering these types of situations. And with AI systems, if they fail and personal data is leaked, it doesn't cover brand damage. It doesn't cover damage to other physical property. There's a lot of things that's unclear. And so customers should really look to see the fine print when they get that certificate of evidence of insurance 
to see what that cybersecurity insurance covers. And if there's any hesitation that it's not going to cover a situation that could potentially happen, they need to make sure another policy is in place that the AI vendor can make claims against. And so I think with kind of all at the end of the relationship with the AI vendor, it's really difficult, again, to understand when the AI vendor needs to delete the data at the end of the agreement and the end of the relationship, especially when AI vendors say they have to keep that information to keep their AI model smart. What have you guys seen, especially with personal data, and I know with data privacy laws, there's return and destruction that's so important to it. How do you guys manage that with AI vendors? I'll jump in first on this one, Jordan. It's a really good point. And frankly, it's been probably the biggest rub that I've seen on the data side with respect to negotiating with AI vendors. I have had scenarios where the vendor you know, was claiming to have de-identified data. So of course, in that case, they can continue to run the de-identified data. But I've also had situations where the vendor does not have de-identified data and they've actually got video imaging And in that case, they agreed to blur and or remove individual images from the data set, which frankly was a very difficult ask, very difficult negotiation. But in the end, they agreed because they were so much wanting to move forward with the opportunity that they, you know, figured out ways to blur the images at the end of the contract so that they could continue to use some of the data that they were using to train their algorithms without using the personally identifiable information. Cynthia, do you have anything to add on that? Sarah, ironically, the issues with Europe and the UK are very similar, particularly if it's personal data. You know, so it's a matter of looking at what data has been tagged, what data is being used, whether the data can be anonymized, or whether if the AI vendor is going to hold on to certain data, they are end up being converted to that controller. That comes with a whole other plethora of issues about then needing to comply with the GDPR, making it transparent to individuals and things like that. But it it becomes very, very difficult when, you know, certain aspects of that personal data are intrinsic to training the AI. And then the other issue that we've seen in terms of data use is also the retention. So under the GDPR, data is only supposed to be used for as long as necessary for a purpose. If an AI vendor says that they need to retain the data because it's now become parcel of the the learning, there has to be a justification for that. And it may not be possible to render it, you know, pseudonymized or anonymous, which are the, the terms that we use in Europe. So it can become a very, very difficult conversation. In most instances, I have found that their discussion focuses on rendering the data as anonymous as possible and ensuring that the AI vendor doesn't have additional data to re-identify the data, which ironically in the UK, re-identifying pseudonymous data is actually a criminal offense. So Jordan, any other IP issues on termination? Yeah, I think I briefly mentioned it a little bit before is it's the ownership right? So is the customer going to get to walk away with that output? Or is it something that they are not going to receive? And you know, they've paid for these services, and they're going to be upset that they don't own it. 
So again, looking at the IP provisions in the contract are just so important, especially with that ownership issue. I think with AI models, I, I understand the idea of them wanting to own it. I liken it to like flashcards, right? Two times two equals four. Well, if you take away the data set, you take away the flashcards, the AI model may know, you know, two times two is four, but it doesn't have that backing. It doesn't have that data that it needs to really make sure it's 99.9% .9 accurate. So I get the AI vendor's hesitation with returning some of the output and with some of the data really that you are inputting as a customer into the AI model. But the customer just really needs to understand from a strategic point if that's something they could negotiate maybe a lower price if the AI vendor continues to get to use that data. Do they get some sort of price discount or maybe some leverage going forward with them using it. So IP, again, huge at termination of the agreement. Well, that's great. Thanks both Cynthia and Jordan. I think we're out of time at this point. I could sit here and talk about this for much longer, and I'm sure both of you could as well. We've highlighted some of the bigger issues that we've seen today, but certainly there may be need for us to have a part two down the line, certainly down the line once we get more feedback here in the U.S. with respect to all of these new laws that we're dealing with. Thanks again for the time. Thanks everyone for listening, and please tune back in uh, for our next podcast. Thanks. Tech Law Talks is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Allie McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's tech and data practice, please email techlawtalks at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at Reed Smith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.